want to make it as good as the one in Sydney. And it's going to be on a bridge? Yeah. On a bridge? On the... Yeah. the, oh, the uh, on a bridge. Yeah. Wow. So okay. last question. What is new about the Taipei 101 Fireworks Show this year? Oh, I know this. Is it lasers? No. No. Nope. Nope. It's going to be 3D. That's right. <laughs> it's uh, 360 <laughs> degrees, meaning that... It's, revol- it's around the whole building. You can watch it at any angle, and you get to see the whole thing. Doesn't that always happen? Like, mm. I remember the fireworks all just spew out. Some of them do, but not all of them. this all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious about today? In the 1920s, the newly born city of Taipei was a rapidly changing place. Automobiles began to fill streets where human-powered rickshaws had once been the only means of transport. Telephone lines began to connect once distant parts of town. An expanding waterwork system piped clean water into homes, and electricity lit up the night as it did in only a few other tiny slivers of Taiwan. The city of Taipei was a lively, dynamic place. And fortunately for us, a snapshot of this city, more perfect than any photo, still survives. A guidebook dating from 1928 that lists everything there was. Everything. Part tourist guide, part phone directory, part atlas, it maps out every single business, public institution, and even market stall that stood at the time giving a valuable look at what people of the time were buying, how they were living, and what visitors to the city could expect when they arrived. The book also tells us a lot about society at the time, especially Taiwan's status at the time as a colony of Japan, and the status of Taiwan's people, in many ways, as second-class citizens. Long out of print, this book has finally been issued this year by the Jiang Weishui Foundation, an organization devoted to Jiang Weishui, 1920s doctor, proponent of Taiwanese culture, and leader of anti-colonial struggle. Association director and grandson of Jiang Weishui, Mr. Jiang Chaogun, joins us today for a look at this priceless document and why his organizations decided to reprint it. The book's printing in 1928 came 33 years into the 50-year rule of Japan over Taiwan. Unlike most guidebooks today, this book was printed for a very specific occasion. It roughly coincided with the formal enthronement of Hirohito, the Showa Emperor, and was meant to commemorate Taipei as it was at that grand moment, even though the Emperor's reign had actually started two years before. Mr. Zhang says we know the name of the book's editor, but the writing and compiling of the whole thing was definitely a group effort. The team had its work cut out for it. It had to make a complete survey of every detail in every corner of a whole city. And if that doesn't sound hard enough, this was a city that was constantly changing. The editor mentions in the book itself that the work kept having to be revised, even up to the final days before printing. 
That's just how fast changing the city was, with new shops and new businesses coming and going all the time. The book's audience was primarily Japanese, both those living as colonists here and those back in Japan who might venture here. Included was plenty of information about where to stay and detailed tables showing costs for a ride in a taxi, bus, or human rickshaw from point A to point B. There were also precise timetables showing arrival and departure times for ships at nearby ports, plus trains running along Taiwan's north-south rail line. Telegraph fees and postage rates were also included. Then there were surveyor-style maps and phone numbers, making the completed work less like a Lonely Planet guide and more like an old-school Yellow Pages. Mr. Jiang says this book is even better than Google today, as every last business, even those on the second or third floor of buildings, and every last market stall was marked and named, with phone numbers where applicable. All the names of all the owners are also included. The finished work contained 113 pages and around 5,000 entries. The city was a lot smaller then than it is today, with only 210,000 inhabitants. Still, it was an important enough place to be worth making this type of survey. The North-South Railway running down Taiwan's west coast had been completed in 1908, knitting much of the island together. Local sanitation had been improved, making Taipei a prime spot for Japanese companies looking to invest in the colony. The authors of the book itself said that by this point was second only to the five great cities of Japan itself in terms of cultural development. It had grand buildings like the colonial governor general's office, today's presidential office, plus the luxurious railway hotel, sadly destroyed during World War II. The city also contained new marketplaces and centers of culture, with a few thousand newfangled telephones to boot. But, Mr. Jiang says, these benefits of the new era were unevenly distributed. Schools, for one, were segregated, with Taiwanese and Japanese colonists of the time studying in separate institutions. He says that Taiwan-wide, rates of school enrollment varied widely at the time the book was published, with around 90% for Japanese colonial pupils and just 30% for their Taiwanese peers. Every single position of educational authority, from the heads of Taipei's new imperial university all the way down to the heads of kindergartens, were Japanese, showing an unwillingness to let any educational authority go into the hands of locals. The markets, too, were unequal. Basically put, anything good could be found in neighborhoods dominated by Japanese settlers. Markets frequented by Taiwanese people, by contrast, could be a bit run down. And as Mr. Zhang's own anti-colonial grandfather, Zhang Weishui, wrote at the time, Japanese areas had paved roads, and Taiwanese areas still often had dirt roads. Taiwan's exports, too, were in colonial hands. While there were more small Taiwanese-owned rice and tea export businesses, the small number of Japanese competitors were much bigger in scale and better financed. In the media, too, there was only one Taiwanese-run newspaper. Taiwanese districts were also around the only areas where opium dens could be found. 
Japanese authorities were happy to sell opium to Taiwanese subjects, but Japanese themselves were forbidden from using the drug. Surprisingly, for a book meant to commemorate an emperor's accession, the authors didn't shy away from including details like these opium dens. They described the city they found as it was, warts and all. There were other rather taboo places included too, including addresses and sites linked with the burgeoning Taiwan autonomy movement. Even people like Jiang Weishui himself, people who openly sought home rule for Taiwan. Jiang was a bit different though. He was, after all, a doctor whose anti-colonial writings include a diagnosis of colonial Taiwan as though it were a patient. His name is listed next to the address of his hospital. But Mr. Zhang says that in total, there are around 10 such sites listed as addresses of Taiwanese nationalist groups. Mr. Zhang says that his reasons for reprinting the book now are twofold. Firstly, he says that this year is the 100th anniversary of Taipei's founding under Japanese rule. He says that while published eight years later, the work gives some idea of the city as it would have been during the 1920s. It also highlights the inferior position of Taiwanese subjects at the time, while also showing the reasons for the burgeoning of their anti-colonial movements. There's also another anniversary coming up. Remember that diagnosis of Taiwan we just talked about? The short text where Zhang Weishui writes of the island like it was one of his patients? Well, it's been 99 years since that was written, and next year, that short text will be 100 years old. The timing seems right, and the Zhang Weishui Foundation is the right group to reprint it. After all, the book is filled with information about places where Zhang and his associates once frequented. This isn't just a simple reprint, though. The original guide, for all its detail, had no photographs in it. It also takes for granted some background knowledge about life in the Japanese Empire and the 1920s more generally. This reprinting comes with 70 new pages added with commentary, explanations, detail, and old photos lined up next to the maps that show the same areas. Since pre-war Japanese and Chinese shared most of the same characters and a lot of vocabulary, there hasn't been a need to translate the book. A lot of the text is just names of people and places anyway. Mr. Zhang says this is lucky, because a complete translation would be not only redundant, but hugely bulky. The result is the best thing next to a time machine we can get. A snapshot of an entire city frozen in minute detail and ready for readers today to get into and explore. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Every class has at least one or two students who are so smart, it seems as though the rest of the class is holding them back. They say things like, This is so easy that I could take the test with my eyes closed. Well, what if they had to do just that? Take a test without relying on their eyesight. I'm Andrew Ryan, and in today's Ear to the Ground, my students at the Taipei School for the Blind show us how it's done. An ear to the ground. We're headed to the publishing division. One of the teachers, Mr. Chen, tells me we're going to record the sound of the printing machine. 
One of my students, Ji Xiang, tells me that they call it a tank. He tells me it gets the name from the sound. Apparently, it's pretty loud. The teacher in charge of the printing division, Mr. Wu, leads us into an air-conditioned room. One of my students cries out, air conditioning! Clearly, this is a bit of a treat. Mr. Wu jokes that the room is climate controlled because the machines are more important than the people. He tells me that the main purpose for the machine is to print out exam papers. And of course, they're printed in Braille. He tells me that the handout I gave my students today was also printed using this very machine, and he agrees to show me how it was done. He loads up the computer file for my handout, and we're ready to go. The printer kicks into action, vibrating a bit as it punches indentations in the thick paper at top speed. I can see, or, or hear now, why they call it the tank. When it's done, Mr. Wu rips the perforations and gives me the handout. He tells me that they print them double-sided. But wait a second, how do you print Braille text on both sides of the page? Sounds like a recipe for confusion. Even though we can see the extra dots, he says, the students can only feel the ones that protrude from the page. The words on the other side of the page sink in, so you can't really feel them unless you flip the page. I'm curious to know what the students think of when they hear the printing machine. I mean, other than military hardware. Zishan tells me several different thoughts go through his head when he hears the sound. No, man, we have to take another test. Yay, we have new handouts that we can read. Woohoo! And oh no, I have to host another event. I'm so nervous. He tells me the last time he hosted an assembly for school, his script was 29 pages long. But back to the test taking. We've already heard the sound of the machine that prints out the exams. But how do the students answer the questions? Xiang loads a piece of paper into what looks like a typewriter. But there are only about a dozen keys. How can that possibly be enough keys to type out the answers? It begins typing the Braille characters, and it turns out that each key corresponds to a dot. So for each word, he presses as many as eight keys at once, four fingers on each hand. He's actually typing pretty fast. And what happens if he makes a mistake? Jijian tells me that they just use a finger to press down the bumps and retype it. Or in some cases, if none of the bumps are actually wrong, they type right over it, adding the extra bumps to make the correct word. Today, he doesn't have to worry about that because he's mistake free. And what's he typed? Today is Friday, June 14th, 2013. Thanks for listening to This Sound Postcard, jointly recorded by Radio Taiwan International and the Taipei School for the Blind.
Nice job hosting there, Jishang. With an ear to the ground, I'm Andrew Ryan. yourself together already. It's time to feast. Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West. Hello, welcome to The Feast, and this is Ellen Chu. And this is Andrew Ryan. So I have been starving myself for three days, so, <laughs> you know, I don't know about this buffet. So I am looking for, I'm really hungry right now. We should explain every year for our last program of the year, of course, we have The Feast Meets West Buffet. It is a look at some of our favorite moments from the past year in our mm. show. But I have a question before we jump into this. Okay. If you pulled up to the 2020 Feast Meets West Buffet, mm-hmm. it was basically, you know, a buffet of everything that happened in the year 2020, mm-hmm. and you discovered that there was only one food left on the buffet mm. that was emblematic of what mm-hmm. the whole year was about, mm-hmm. what would that food be? I think it tasted very, kind of like a fast food. Fast food. <laughs> Don't you feel? Yeah, everything was kind of bland. Kind of cheap and empty. Cheap and empty. Oh, my goodness. And it just kind of like went by really fast. It went by fast. Yeah, so, you know, uh, it's kind of like a fast food. Okay. It, there are some, some stuff that's pretty tasty, like, you know, French fries and you know, <laughs> side dish, but... You know, it's not something that gourmet, gourmet. It didn't nourish you as a year. No. Okay. So for me, I pull up to the buffet. Do you know what the last thing on my buffet is? What? (laughs) It's a drink. (laughs) It's a hard drink. It's it's whiskey. whiskey. Okay. (laughs) Because, you know, you're a little bit bit bitter, a little bit like spicy, um, and then you drink it and you're kind of numb. I think in some ways, so many things are happening, we didn't have time to process it. Exactly. So shall we have a look at the things that happened in our year on our show? Okay. Let's Let's do do it. it. All right, so this year got off to a bit of a weird start, mm-hmm. uh, not only in the world, but also in our show. It was yes. a strange year, so it's only fitting that we started on the wrong foot. Okay. Or feet, as the mm-hmm. case may be. We are here at Feet Meast Wet. Okay? <laughs> Wait, say the name of our show again, Ellen Ju? Feast Meets West. Okay. See? Uh, actually, at the beginning of the year, in our very first episode, have a listen to this. Hello. Welcome to the feed. Welcome to 2020. <laughs> I'm Andrew Ryan. <laughs> Ellen G, you started the whole year by calling it feet. <laughs> right. You know, it was just a bad year, so it's a bad start. You know, I I remember, I think, you know, this year was kind of like, you know, going into coronavirus and then, you know, coming back from the States, you know, for me, mm. it was kind of like coming back to be incarcerated in my country. Yeah, that's right? right. You came back in February, right? Right. And things were already locked down. Right. 
As you can imagine, even though this is a food show, we still spent a lot of time this year talking about COVID-19. Right. On February 29, we did a whole show about garlic, okay? This is to boost up your immune system, and it might also help keep virus away, literally. Ladies and gentlemen, I just sprinkled some fresh baked sesame seeds over the top of Ellen Chu's garlicky app. So just to uh, tell you what's in there, uh-huh. we have baby corn, mm. we have inaki mushrooms, we have carrots, mm-hmm. and we have a very garlicky sauce, and it's topped by toasted sesame seeds. Okay. Mm. <laughs> this is so good. Wow, that sounds like a rave review. I love it. Wow, a little bit of crunch in there. Mmm, and I like the little garlicky taste. No. Plus, the sesame flavor at the end that kicks in. A little sesame kick? Mm-hmm. Does it pass the uh, Ellen Chu test? Yes, this one passed. Do you know how this works? I'll tell you how this keeps you safe from COVID-19. Really? Okay. So you, basically what you do is you eat it. And then your breath smells terrible and no one comes near you. You don't need a mask. So they can't transmit any terrible diseases to you because you're keeping them away. (laughs) Now, clearly, we're not suggesting that garlic or anything else is a replacement for a surgical mask. Now, on a serious note, a lot of Chinese restaurants around the world closed down this year, some of them because of anti-Chinese fear about the origins of the coronavirus. We decided to show our support, okay? Of course, we are strong backbones right here. We found a restaurant in Taipei that sells Wuhan Gan Mian, the famous hot dry noodles of Wuhan. Ooh, I remember that. And decided to check it out. We are at a restaurant called Xiao Huo Ban. Right. We are now with the owners of this restaurant, Xiao Cai. And and we realized that, oh, okay, the reason they have this dish is because one of them is from Hubei. Oh, now I'm curious to know, like, if people see it on the menu because it has the name Wuhan in it, if that has raised any questions from people recently, recently after right. the outbreak of the virus. Right. <laughs> So people say maybe they should change the name. So they joke about it and they say if somebody orders the noodles, then they're all like, you're so brave to order them. Of course, you know, anybody with sense would think that, you know, this is just the name of the noodles made here, right? So no problem. What's great about the noodles is that they really grind their own sesame to make the sauce. Now, your kids, Ryan and Rihanna, were also there to sample the special noodles from Wuhan. Have mm-hmm. a listen. We have two little hawks coming in, joining us here, eating our noodles. Did you just call your children hogs? Yeah, hawks. Oh, hawks. Yeah, circling like overhead. Circling overhead, waiting for their noodles. And what do you say, Ellen Chu? This is so good. You know, the mm. consistency, actually the, mm. the sauce, you know, it's thick, mm. but not too thick. okay? Mm. Just a little bit of spiciness and the sesame flavor. It's and so peanuts. nutty. There is like peanuts in there. And crunchy peanuts. Crunchy peanuts, you know, so you like the peanut butter with some crunch in there. Mm. Then you will like this. What do you guys think? Yeah. It's good. Ah, it's super good. 
Super good from Ryan and yum from Brianna. It's yummy. Huh? I think we've got some winners over here. I think it's like four thumbs up. I think so. Right. This is the, this is the most sesame flavor I think I've ever tasted in any dish ever. I think so too. Now, before we left the restaurant, I wanted to just ask Xiaoman how her family is doing in Hubei province. She said they don't live in the city of Wuhan. They actually live in other cities or in the countryside. Her mom lives in a farming village, and the people are fewer and more spread out. They've been at home ever since Lunar New Year's Eve in late January. Shaman says they grow vegetables next to their place, so they have plenty of cabbage, turnips, and other veggies. They also grow celery. The villagers will often raise chickens before the New Year holiday, so they all had chickens, but they didn't have pork because of swine flu. They had geese, fish, and plenty of food for the New Year, so they're doing okay. Her aunt, on the other hand, lives in the city, and they don't stock up on food like people in the village do. She said every household can call up the grocery store once a week, and there's a limit on orders of 100 renminbi or less. That's about $14 U.S. They uh, get information about the food that's available and the variety and the price, and then they order it and they just send it to you. So what's her family doing while they're all stuck at home? <laughs> she said they're catching up on TV shows and re-watching old shows because there's not a whole lot of new ones out. Of course, we wish Xiaoman's family all the best. Okay, on March 19, ooh, what a great day. Taiwan closed its border to all visitors. What a great day. That was your birthday, I but, know. but not a great day. Yeah, they won't let anybody to attend my birthday party, and they told us that students and teachers were not allowed to leave the country. And actually, that Saturday, on March 21st, I asked you to tell me how life had changed for you. Have a listen to what you said. My daily routine is I wake up early in the morning and take my kids to school really early so we could stand there and assist the school by taking temperature for all the kids because we're still waiting for a temperature monitor or infrared. Uh-huh. Where you just walk through, but it's all sold out. It's like those like screens at the airport where you can right. see like the different colors for temperatures. Exactly. Yeah. For now, you're using those little like the guns that you hold up to the forehead. Yes, which is pretty scary. It's like you know we have post where people. It's kind of like a factory. You know, it's like a uh, working station. An assembly line. So, yeah, like station A, you spray, sanitize your hand. Station two, take your temperature. Station three, stamp your hand if you're okay to go in. Uh-huh. And uh, station four is like, check if you have a mask. Oh. If you don't, you need to sign up with a nurse to get one. So this year, one of the most exciting culinary moments, if I may, was when MasterChef China's Stephen Liu came on our show. That was fun. I know. He made a surprising dish for us using just two humble ingredients. Well, the clock is ticking. I have uh, right here, I have a braised pork oh, on you, rice. You, you did? I have it oh, here, and I have good. a little jar of peanut butter. Okay. I'm going to bring it out, and we're going to oh. follow you down to a microwave, and we're going to cook it up, yeah? Definitely. Is microwave okay? Microwave, I, definitely. I, I know the chefs usually look down on microwaves, but today... I, I okay. using everything can cook. <laughs> okay. Everything that can everything. heat. All right, let's do it.
I've never used this microwave. So what are we doing? You want to tell us again? This is uh, peanut, peanut butter. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Yeah. So you get like a little liquid mm -hmm. and melt. Then you have your braised pork sauce. Okay. It's ready. We just blend together. Uh, so Ellen Chu, what do you have there? This is our braised pork. Okay. okay, this is the most famous Hu Shu Zhang braised pork. Braised pork on rice. Okay. And we're gonna heat it up and pour it on top. This and is something we've never done before. We're supposed to blend it. It's very, I don't know, you know, just thinking of the two combination, I would never think of putting them together. <laughs> but. but it's gonna come out nice and soft and like juicy, creamy. right? Creamy. It'll be more creamy. Okay. And warm. The flavor from the peanut butter itself, uh, half salty, half sweet. Half it's salty, just right. sweet. It's just right for this uh, greasy, oily, fresh mm. pork. Oh. That really clean the fat. Oh, it's so good. The best way is without the rice. So just mix it up. Okay, so then I heat it up just a little bit. It's hot. You need to be hot. Okay. What do you think, Alan Chu? I still think it's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. Alright, let's head back up. Studio 6A, we gotta run. Let's go, Ellen. Ooh. Time's running out. Here we go. Got one minute left. Oi! Done! Oh la la. I have one spoon. You can I use have, that? I can use my chopstick. Okay. You guys enjoy. Mm. Something very unique. We will never get what it is from. Mm. You know, it's a different texture. It yes. gives that creamy. creamy and thickness. Yeah. And then the aftertaste. You have the peanut. Uh, very little. This is good. One more. You can only have that one last bag, okay? It's like you do it at the home, when you cook the braised pork, you know, finish with the peanut butter, mm -hmm. then keep it in the fridge. Do you always do that? You know, put together yes. things in your, you know, refrigerator and just test it out? I love refrigerator. Wow. I love everyone's refrigerator. You love the challenge of you like figuring out like, what exactly. do I do with Tabasco and peaches? <laughs> Tabasco and peaches. That work? That works. I just said that randomly. Tabasco, peaches with a little mint. What would you, you know? do? Would you grill it? Uh, no, they can go with a fresh salad. You can go, yeah, you can go with a cold or hot. Uh, doesn't matter. Peach, peach, Tabasco. You have uh, exodus. Your you challenge. <laughs> then, yeah, easy. You put a little brown sugar. Mm -hmm. wow. yeah. Make it as a curry. I'm going to do exactly what you said. I'll try to peach put it together. Chicken. Do the coconut peach chicken. Coconut peach chicken. With a drip of Tabasco. Drip of Tabasco. There. Mint? Mint? No, forget about mint. Forget get about a, the mint. Get a coriander and... Coriander. Coriander mm. basil. Andrew was so inspired by Master Chef Stephen Liu that he went home and tried his own mystery box challenge. Woohoo! And so what I did was I went back home and I looked in my fridge and I found some beautiful wax apples that are in mm -hmm. season and I paired them up with little basil, some celery, toasted cashews, mm. and I made a little vinaigrette out of lemon, um, some dark sesame oil, soy sauce, sesame seeds, honey, brown sugar, and garlic. It. It pairs very well. Does it? Mm -hmm. I was, you know, kind of having doubt about the basil leaf, mm -hmm. but it really kind of wakens your, you know, taste buds. It wakens your taste buds. Mm -hmm. 
I have fresh herbs on my balcony, so I decided mm. that I wanted to use those and wow. see what I could do with that. This is good. I think, you know, once in a while, I need to bring some people in to mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, give you a kick in the butt so <laughs> it could inspire you to do something different. I actually sent a picture of your dish to Master Chef Stephen Liu, and this was his response. Andrew is amazing, and he can make candied cashews and add some rocket leaves with a touch of blue cheese. Grilled chicken breast also will be mm -mm, a perfect meal. Mm, I was pretty proud of that, uh, to be honest. Yay. You probably kind of like, you know, framed it in gold, right? And then you signed Stephen Liu yourself. You know me so well, Ellen Chu. Okay. So the day after that show aired, on April 12th, Taiwan actually reported its final domestic case of COVID-19, although I guess we didn't know it at the time. We celebrated days on which there were no new cases by eating special foods like donuts, which look like zeros. One of the foods we ate has a name that sounds like Return to Zero in Mandarin, Guiling. We have little dishes of Guiling Gao mm. or tortoise jelly, mm -hmm. black globules in our little dishes. This is wonderful. It's and drizzled with honey on top of you know, it. Before, mm -hmm. when I was younger, I was reluctant to try this because it has the ukwei the gui, the turtle word in it. I'm pretty sure there's no turtles in this one. Uh, maybe just gelatin and Chinese herbs. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I didn't realize how bitter it was. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. It's really bitter. But actually, with more honey on it, it tastes pretty it's good. It's really good. I. Practically just, you know, squeeze all of it. Okay? <laughs> I love honey. I like to be honey suckled. You are a honey, Ellen Chu. <laughs> I am a honey, okay? One of the most moving stories we talked about this year was about a woman who discovered some old urns of vinegar in her house. That was my friend Yao from the Atayal tribe, or the Dayan people. And she told me how her sister Doyu had made the vinegar nearly 20 years ago, hoping it would help their dying mother get better. Yao tells me that her sister had been researching the best ways of creating vinegar and about its health properties. It was a lot of trial and error, making vinegar from all sorts of different things, everything from chili peppers to garlic. And when she was done, she sealed up each container one by one and moved on to the next batch. Yao tells me that the containers were stored underneath the bed where her Indonesian domestic caregiver, a woman named Hana, sleeps. They were underneath the bed for years, and Yao had long ago forgotten about them. Yao's mother eventually passed away, and so did her sister Doyu. Years later, her father would follow suit and her little brother. And all the while, those urns of vinegar sat silently beneath the bed. Until... One day, a couple months before I interviewed her, Yao suddenly remembered about the vinegar. 
She and Hana pulled the urns out, opened them up, and tasted them. She decided it was time to use up all the vinegar. She'd seen the effort her sister had put into making it and figured that if they left it to the next generation, no one would care about it as much as she did. Only Yao knows the true meaning behind the contents of those urns. She tells me it's a symbol of Doyu's love for her family. I was curious to know what Yao thought the first time she tasted the vinegar. The chili pepper vinegar no longer tastes like chili peppers, she says. It has a sweet, natural flavor. You can dilute it with water and it goes down smooth, she says. I can't help but thinking that that's a metaphor for how time heals painful memories. Now, there's writing on the back of the bottles of vinegar, so I ask Yao to read it out loud for me. Love one another because God is love. Now, don't forget, Douyu was a nun, a woman of faith. Yao tells me that when Douyu was nearing the end of her life, the family gathered together to hold a mass for her. And that's the message that Douyu struggled to impart on her family that day. Love one another because God is love. Yao says that when she tastes the vinegar, she can taste all of Douyu's good intentions and the love that she left for their family. But Yao didn't want to consume the vinegar all by herself and be the sole recipient of that love. And that's why I'm sharing it with all of you, she says. So many people loved Douyu because she had a deep understanding of how to love and care for others. This is all that's left. Once the vinegar is gone, it will be gone. Now, believe it or not, Yao's 20-year-old vinegar was not the oldest thing that we sampled in our show this year. He also had some beer that was made from 100-year-old yeast. Ooh, grandpa-grandma yeast. (laughs) But before we sample that beer, we get a sneak peek at the inner workings of the Taipei Brewery from Mr. Wu Shurong, who's been working there for more than 40 years. I feel like we're in the dungeon now. Hey. The basement. <laughs> Whoa, it's dark. <laughs> wow. So we're in the oldest building on the brewery site, built in 1919. So it's more than 100 years old. Mr. Wu says that he doesn't drink any beer because he works here every day and he's working with the beer every day, but I don't know if I believe that. He drinks Gaoliang and also, you know, all the hard liquors. I think that's probably what it is, right? Maybe not the, it's not strong enough. (laughs) So we're climbing some stairs off to the next location to see where they ferment it. So they have a test for all the uh, staff when they enter the uh, factory. They have to pass the examination where they carry a 30 kg rice bag. And how far do they have to carry it? So 30 meters? Within two minutes, back and forth. Oh my goodness. I don't know if I would pass the test. (laughs) Okay, so they only have a written exam these days. They don't have the uh, physical tests. All right. Because in the old days, they have to carry all the rice inside the factory. Cheers. 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 
That's Mr. Wu you can hear there, and our co-worker Leslie Liao, who has come along for the ride. We're sampling the first of five mm. beers made from 100-year-old yeast. And that is smooth is the only word to smooth. describe that. That is wow. Just a little bit sweet, right? Mr. Wu says that his team made improvements to the beer to make it lighter and fresher. It's not as bitter as it was back in the day. Westerners like the bitter taste of hops, he says, but not here in Asia. So Taiwan beer and 18 days, those are much lighter. So what kind of beer are we sampling today? Mr. Wu tells us that they use the same wort that they use for Taiwan beer. Side note, wort is the liquid that's extracted during the mashing process when you're brewing beer. It contains the sugars that will be fermented by the yeast. I keep commenting on how it tastes so fresh, and Mr. Wu says that's because it's freshly brewed. If you let it sit for longer, the flavors will age. That's why Mr. Wu insisted on having us come back after the beer had fermented for five weeks, the perfect time to taste it. So how does Mr. Wu keep the yeast alive? Every three months, they take the yeast out of the freezer and reactivate it. They put the solid yeast into the liquid of the wort to get it exercising. That's how they can maintain the ideal physiological state of the yeast. Mr. Wu tells us that when he first started working at the Taipei Brewery about 40 years ago, there were just six people responsible for taking care of the yeast, and now there are only two. Sometimes, he says, he does it all by himself. This is what the ancestors drank, the fruit of their labor. This is, I am traveling in time by a libation. That's basically what's happening. 100-year-old yeast, man, I never thought. What was the last time you touched anything that was that old that wasn't a building or something like that? I mean, something food-related? This has got to be the first time. I think so, right? My goodness. You think 100 is old? Well, let me tell you, we also celebrated something that turned 8,000 this year. That's right. Spoiler alert, it was our show. This is our 1,000th episode, Ellen Chu. Oh my, 1,000 already? Yes, 1,000 Okay, already. because, you know, I lose count. It's been years and years and, you know, all my youth has been put into this show <laughs> with Andrew. All my youth as well. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and look, we look fabulous still, so that's great. I know, we look just like the day we started here. I mean, essentially. Okay. <laughs> I have a couple fewer hairs. That's about it. I know. Like, our listeners probably don't know, you know, how we have changed over time. Well, we still look like hot babes. So, that's, <laughs> that's you know, all you need to know. Okay. So, <laughs> we sound like hot babes. How's that? <laughs> yeah. That, that will match. So, I did another fun calculation, Ellen Chu. Do you know if you listen to all 1,000 shows back to back, do you know how long you'd have to listen to? Us. Uh, wow. They're 31 minutes an episode or 32 now. Uh-huh. So you would need 517 hours. Wow. That's 21 and a half days. Wow. Back to back. Okay. Or, uh, 24 non, hours a day. Non-sleep, okay. All Ellen, all the time. That would be scary, okay. <laughs> so if anyone would take up that challenge, you know, 24 hours a day listening to us for 21.5, you get a prize. I tell you, I couldn't do it. So I don't know how anybody else could do it. <laughs> So I want to finish uh, with a clip today to keep me honest. Uh, you know, for all of my successes in the kitchen this year, there were also some pretty epic fails. Like the time when you tried to steam some snow pears to cure my cough. 
Well, mm, well, I'm not coughing anymore. And let's just take a listen. Oh, you know what? I forgot something. Water. I forgot the water. You it, forgot to put water in there, right? I forgot to put water in there. It's supposed to stew. Right. So, you know, the gogi berry and red day should be more mild. The yes. Taste. It was, it's pretty strong in here. Pretty strong in there. Pretty strong. Pretty strong. So, it needs to, like, melt down so, more. So, you know, I think all my phlegm is just going to, like, clear up right in a second. So, see, your cough is gone. I this, haven't heard you cough since you like ate it. This is, extra dose it's or so OD. Good. Oh, I, you overdosed on snow pear. Right. It's so funny when we both... Because it looks pretty, right? I know. It looks pretty. And then we both bit into it. We're like, hmm. Because I had it before. And then I remember it was kind of like baby food. Yeah. It's like mushy. Mushy. And then there are some still some liquid. And my mom would ask me to drink it first. Make you drink the liquid, right? Right. And the one that I served you was not baby food. It was adult food. It was just crunchy. Well, uh, you win some, you lose some. Yeah, but... It's good. I have to give you credit. He bought this expensive pair, right? Even though he did it wrong. But, okay. <laughs> you know, he made a major boo-boo by not <laughs> adding water. But um, we give him credit. Even though he totally screwed it up. <laughs> we, we appreciate the fact that he spent a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> he just screwed up this precious <laughs> snow crystal pear. One of the most expensive and prized fruits in all of Taiwan. Right. And he's screwed, screwed it, it up. <laughs> so those are some of our uh, favorite moments from the year 2020. Do you have any favorite foods that you uh, enjoyed? Um, I remember, I think you made some ice cream, right? Ice cream. You don't remember. <laughs> I remember you made some ice cream and it was pretty successful. Now I am totally drawing a blank. Mm-hmm. Let me have a little look and see if I remember what ice cream that was. Okay. I know anyway. I made a dessert. I made a couple desserts, right? Right. So the dessert was kind of amazing. And, um, <laughs> Even though neither one of us remembers it. Yeah. Okay. So we had zucchini muffins, mm-hmm. which is chocolate. Um, I made some chocolate dipped pears, mm-hmm. the little tiny pears. Right. Uh, a grilled watermelon salad uh-huh. We saw that well, I made you a Bloody Mary Oh that was good <laughs> A cactus cocktail Uh huh I made you bird's nest of the sea Uh huh Some mango pudding That's probably what you're thinking of Right I think mango pudding uh, I made the eclipse dessert The cafe dong Oh that was good That was pretty good Yeah So what are you most thankful for this year Ellen Chu? I am thankful that everybody's safe and mm-hmm. we still live a pretty, you know, decent and normal life compared to other people around the world. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, my kids are not doing online and they're... You mean for school. For school, yeah. right. They're actually, you know, in school and having a social and academic life. So, you know, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful, too. I think most of all for for health and Mm -hmm. uh, for the ability to, you know, have my family members, even Mm -hmm. though we're not nearby, at least we can talk via Zoom or Skype. So I'm I'm grateful for their health as well. Right. 
and wishing all of you the best mm-hmm. of health in the coming year. Mm-hmm. We're going to end with a, a final song. This is called Thank You or Shishi, and it's by Apao. Shishi. This is a Paiwan tribe singer who won Album of the Year, Best Indigenous Language Album, and Song of the Year for this song. Okay. So there you go. For Feast Me Swest, I'm Andrew Ryan. This is Ellen Chu. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6185 kHz. In South Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199 Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.